and welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. Today's episode will focus on Lebanon. It seems like Lebanon has been forever a land of contrasts, a beautiful country bordered by the oceans and the mountain, and known for its cuisine and nightlife and cafes. It's also sadly been for far too long a land of religious strife and violence. After a decade of some solace from the civil war and strife, Lebanon seemed to be enjoying a comeback, but now it's hit rocky, rocky shores again. And since the twin explosions rocked Beirut's port on the afternoon of August 4th, leaving at least 200 dead, thousands injured, and hundreds of thousands without homes, it seems that the country, which has long been in the midst of economic and political crisis, is now spiraling completely out of control. That's true. And the explosion, which some suspected initially to be an act of terrorism, was apparently the result of improper storage of chemicals used for explosives and considered to be one of the strongest non-nuclear explosions in history. The blast was felt in Syria, Turkey, Cyprus, Israel, and the horrifying video footage we've all seen of 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate exploding in the heart of the city was downloaded everywhere. And the political aftershocks of this explosion came pretty quickly. Even as the government declared a state of emergency, Lebanese men and women staged massive protests blaming poor leadership for failing to take preventive measures with such a large amount of explosive and this outrage that went into the streets, but that followed months of citizen marches and boycotts and protests against the government for inaction on economic stagnation, on corruption, on the increasing use of Lebanon as a pawn and a proxy by regional powers. A week after the explosion, the Western-backed prime minister and cabinet resigned, framing the move as taking a step back to stand with the people. Yeah, right. In a system that was already ridden with infighting and corruption. So today on Altamar, we will dive into the underlying causes of Lebanon's discontent, the political forces so interesting inside and outside of the country, and how these explosions have further impacted the region's complex power networks. We'll be joined later by our guest, Paul Salem, president of the Middle East Institute, who will help us understand the intricacies of these politics and share the country's outlook from a Lebanese perspective. Muni, the devastation in Beirut fueled even more anger around the already deepening economic crisis, the rising poverty, unemployment that reached 25%, raging wildfires that have ravaged the country, and more recently, an understaffed and under-equipped medical infrastructure that has been just unable to manage COVID. And the country's health sector is decimated, especially after the destruction of so many health facilities and so many beds that were filled with wounded from the blast. It does appear that Lebanon is faced with a very complex mix of financial crisis, rising poverty, food shortages, a collapsed currency, and very, very angry protesters on the street. The governing system is a jigsaw puzzle created to placate the sectarian divisions of the country, and it seemed like a solution, but has turned into a worse problem. So now the protests have successfully forced the resignation of a government, which was widely seen as corrupt. The problem is what comes next, because few Lebanese trust the country's political leaders to properly investigate the causes of the explosion and let alone make reparations for the victims and let alone run a country. So in other words, a perfect storm for more national unrest. Yeah, you're totally right. And Lebanon is now more than ever at a crosshairs between the domestic confusion and sort of melting that's going on and the Middle East conflict itself. It depends on the UN for aid, on the IMF for debt restructuring and money for its government, on 
and on foreign leaders and NGOs for humanitarian assistance. And although for many, Lebanon was perceived years ago as this type of sanctuary in you know, a tumultuous regions with cafes and religious diversity and adequate services, the politics in this country have been increasingly fragmented since the 15-year civil war. Post-Civil War administrations didn't have good administration as an objective. The only objective was to shoehorn a government that reflected the sectarian divisions. There are 18 religious communities between Shia, Sunni, Christian, Jews, Druze, and the three main political offices, the Speaker's office, the President's office, and the Prime Minister's office, along with a parliament that is divided between Christian, Shia, Muslim, and Sunni Muslim. It's a mess. The country's religious diversity which was something that they were proud of for many years, is now its greatest political weakness. And the sectarian groups have become a proxy for external powers. Iran's backing of the powerful Shia Hezbollah alliance. Uh, look at the West supporting the recent governments. Certainly Saudi Arabia is supporting Sunni Muslim interests. And so what was designed as a power-sharing solution is now a chaotic, sectarian, paternalist system rampant with corruption. You've described it really well. It's a very complex environment. And after the explosions, other interested parties have come in and entered the fray. The U.S. has waded into the explosion investigation, sending FBI agents to, quote, clarify some of the questions behind the incident. They've been super careful not to comment and say that the communications will come directly from Lebanon. Hezbollah leaders who reject the Western-led investigation pointed to Israel as a possible culprit. And then there's France. Well, President Emmanuel Macron flew to Beirut a few days after the explosion, creating a surreal scene of a foreign president providing solace and care, which was actually kind of welcomed by the Lebanese people. And he's become deeply involved in the search for a political solution and actually proposed a political transition for Lebanon to transparently channel international aid. His goodwill gestures have been labeled opportunists by politicians, rightly so, but the Beirutis recovering on the street seemed grateful that somebody actually cared. Of course, Iran's foreign minister also flew into Beirut to show support for Hezbollah on the same day that Israel and the UAE announced a deal to open diplomatic ties. So sectarian tensions are even higher, and Lebanon is again not only recovering from the explosion, but in the middle of this global power struggle between proxy backers and along the various internal players. Very complicated. It's a sad scene, Mooney, and it could have repercussions for a very vulnerable part of the world. So let's invite our guests to shed some light on what the current situation looks like and what the future will hold. Paul Salem is president of the Middle East Institute, which specializes on all about the political change, the transitions and the conflicts, as well as the international relations of the Middle East. Salem is the author and editor of a number of books and reports on the subject. And prior to joining the Middle East Institute, Salem was the founding director of the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut. Before that, he was director of the Fadis Foundation and founded and directed the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies, Lebanon's leading policy think tank. Importantly, I want everybody to know that Salem is also a musician and composer of Arabic-Brazilian jazz, and his music can be found on iTunes. Paul Salem, thank you for joining us on Altamar today. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure and an honor. So let me let me just ask the basic, is Lebanon unfixable? It, it, the sectarian oligarchy seems so entrenched. There's so, so much conflict, corruption, rivalry, politics seem broken. Can Lebanon survive? 
Uh, well, they are, I guess, two different questions. Something will survive. Lebanon will survive. Is it fixable uh, is a complicated question. Let me unpack it at three levels. Uh, there is an aspect of Lebanon's predicament uh, in which you have Hezbollah, an armed uh, group, which is uh, armed and, and led and financed by Iran, which is part of a uh, confrontation between Iran on the one side and the U.S., uh, on the other, with some of its allies like Israel and the Gulf being in the mix as well. That major existential problem, which is having an armed group which does not obey the Lebanese constitution or Lebanese authorities and basically is a state within a state, is a kind of a mortal wound that Lebanon cannot fix on its own. It's fixable in the context maybe of some grand bargain with Iran or some other major international or regional event, it's not locally fixable. When we get to the local scene, there's the economic and the political. Uh, as maybe some of your listeners know, uh, the horrific blast that uh, took out part of Beirut on August 4 came at the tail end of nine, 10 months uh, of an economic, a really a horrific economic collapse. Lebanon was a middle-income country, doing reasonably well uh, over the course of nine months. Uh, the uh, uh, economy ground to a halt and is in a major contraction. Uh, the banks uh, ceased giving money to, you know, giving their, you know, people's depositors, depositors money to them. The currency lost 80% of, of its value. The government uh, reneged on its international debt and so on. So we were already in the midst of a complete, uh, economic and financial meltdown. Of course, the whole world had COVID to deal with as well. Uh, and then we got uh, the blast of August 4. On the economic side, uh, is it fixable? Yes. I mean, it is a very dire economic situation, but similar to, uh, you know, crises that Argentina went through, uh, Greece uh, and others, there is a pathway to fix that. Uh, and that would be uh, through significant reforms that would have to be made inside Lebanon and then serious negotiations with the IMF, uh, as well as uh, serious international support, which the international community is willing to give if the government implements reforms. So there is a pathway there. But that does lead us to the political logjam in which you have a corrupt oligarchy, which has been running the place for about 30 years. Uh, very sectarian, very corrupt, uh, which has led the country to this sort of bankruptcy at the economic level and bankruptcy at the level of basic governance, you know, not leaving 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate in the country's port would have been a good idea. Uh, that challenge is more difficult, but that, but there is a kind of an uprising that began last October that's trying to bring change. We want to ask you about that uprising, but before we get to that, I mean, you, you've done such a good job of connecting these things. The fixability and the economic fixability and the political fixability are so intertwined. And, and you know, in a way, there was some hope about this past technocratic government because it was technocratic, because somehow it was initially seen as not disconnected from uh, perhaps it could be more independent from some of the sectarian corruption that existed so but this government failed too and you know they crumble under the weight of the sectarian oligarchic demands you know they're they're now running from their own responsibility and blaming the past and saying that lebanon is somehow the past of lebanon is somehow unchangeable i mean i guess what i'm asking is we had a technocratic government 
and that didn't seem to do it either. Uh, well, what we had was a government selected by the oligarchs and answerable to them of technocrats. Uh, what the uprising in the civil society movement had been calling for and is still calling for today is an independent, uh, a group of independent, yes, technocrats, in other words, people who know what they're doing, but people who know that what they're doing, but who don't answer uh, to the oligarchs. That was not the case with the, with the current government. Uh, it's also the reality that for the fundamental reforms that any government would need to undertake, those fundamental reforms require votes of parliament. So unless you have parliament buy-in, and again, the oligarchy controls the main blocks in parliament, no government can undertake the big reforms. Uh, they can do the small reforms, but it's big reforms that are required. Uh, what the uprising or civil society groups are calling for today is, is a new government of, as I said, independent, capable people, but a government that is granted special legislative special legislative powers uh, for a set period of time so that it can actually get stuff done without having to horse trade with the oligarchy and their blocks in parliament. That has happened in Lebanon before. It's unlikely that the oligarchy will cede that authority, but that's that's where we are. Paul, can you describe the protests a little bit? Because some observers from the outside have admired kind of the young, non-sectarian nature of them and calling them a new Arab Spring. is It's obvious something is going on, but is it is it really an independent, authentic nationalism that is non-sectarian, or are there other political forces in, in play? First of all, it is a broad spectrum. I mean, anybody can go on the street and protest, so it's not a centralized or organized movement. Uh, the anger and the frustration and the poverty uh, is widespread. So you get all kinds of people, all kinds of groups protesting. Uh, I would say uh, the core of what many of us and maybe much of the outside world has focused on, which is which is true, is a, a young sort of a generational change that has not grown up or bought into sort of the status quo. Uh, and sees, uh, uh, you know, a fundamentally different Lebanon. And they see that in the context of getting beyond sectarianism, that sectarianism not be the driving force for political mobilization or political identity, and certainly to throw the whole lot of aging, uh, corrupt sectarian politicians out and bring about a new generation uh, of leaders. That core of the movement itself is, is very pluralistic. There's leftists and rightists and socialists and, you know, a whole bunch of people. Uh, but they are really uh, trying to, uh, in these past weeks, realizing that they have to coalesce, they have to unify more, they have to speak with one voice if they're going to have any chance of presenting a real alternative uh, to the Lebanese people or the, even the international community. Keep in mind, Lebanon is and remains an electoral democratic system, uh, and the oligarchs that are in place today were recently voted into office by the people a couple of years ago, and there's supposed to be an election in 2022 where people will have a chance to vote differently. But in order to do that, you have to organize, mobilize, get the vote out, 
similar to what we're seeing in the U.S. So let's assume that this movement is successful and that it, it kind of really designs a political solution or a political transition. What would a successful transition look like? 2022 is, is a couple of years away. Is it possible to have any type of anticipated transition in a land where the sectarian groups still, you know, select the parliament and the and the country's leaders, as you mentioned? Uh, well, again, I think we have to unpack, you know, what's fixable and what's not. Uh, Hezbollah, for the foreseeable future, it being basically part of the Iranian deployments uh, in the Middle East, particularly to deter Israel or the U.S. from attacking Iran, that is not something the Lebanese can fix in an election. And that is not going to be part of a Lebanese transition. Now, you know, if there's some change in Tehran or some grand bargain, maybe, you know, that'll, that'll happen. But that's outside of the control of the Lebanese. The transition that potentially could happen in Lebanon through an election is to replace uh, a fair number of the current oligarchy. I don't, to be realistic, I don't see uh, the possibility of a, you know, across the board sweep. But there are a number of major politicians that are uh, uh, gravely wounded politically. And if one gets a bit into the weeds, uh, the main uh, block of Christian deputies uh, in parliament, pardon the expression in that sense, uh, belongs to uh, the president and his son-in-law who are allied with Hezbollah. That is the group that has been mortally wounded by what happened on August 4, and they are not likely to be re-elected as a majority group in parliament. For example, that would bring a new leadership. So the transition, to my mind, would not be kind of a black and white, you know, a day and night kind of, or night and day transition, but it would mean bringing in uh, a new generation of thinking and leaders into the parliament, not necessarily as a majority, but at least as a big minority, to begin to be a credible alternative and to build over time. But Lebanon will continue to be a country which does not uh, control, which is not sovereign because of the presence effectively of a foreign army. Let's move to the precarious economic situation, which you described. Um, the IMF has demanded reforms. Lebanese authorities are counting on outside actors, whether it's the UN, the US, the World Food Program, the IMF, which I mentioned before, France somehow has come out as this uh, this big uh, savior. So describe to us what is really the economic situation and how it needs to. Will the IMF provide monies without a government that can actually provide the reforms? Well, there's three levels of this. I mean, there is the post-blast humanitarian response. And that really is not linked to reform. Or what is the government going to do or not do? People have been, you know, dealt such a terrible blow. A big part of the city is devastated. That's, you know, that's what brought the French president to Beirut. It wasn't the IMF talks. Uh, and that is a matter of acute, you know, urgency and international consensus that the people who suffered are not to blame and must be helped. Uh, and that is going to be proceeding apace uh, with international funding and support through international NGOs working with local NGOs and totally bypassing the Lebanese government, which nobody has trusted. Now, when it gets to the longer-term economic uh, situation, uh, the conditions are, are dire uh, in the sense that the economy is in an acute contraction, estimated maybe 20-25%, uh, 
is at a complete standstill. Poverty is, you know, moving beyond 50%. Lebanon was a middle-income country. Hunger is now a real problem. Uh, and unemployment is also soaring as well. Uh, the IMF engagement uh, potentially could be at two levels. At the moment, there is no real IMF engagement because there's been no seriousness on the side of the Lebanese government. Uh, if there were to be a new Lebanese government, either it could take very limited steps, uh, which might trigger a very limited IMF engagement, a very limited package, roughly of maybe a billion dollars, which is really not much, uh, you know, just to provide some stabilization of the currency and so on. But to get any of the big ticket items from the IMF, which would be more of a $10 billion loan, which would then trigger another $10 billion from the international community, that requires much more fundamental reform. Currently, the again, I call it the oligarchy. It's currently dominated by Hezbollah. Uh, Hezbollah uh, is not terribly interested in economic development and, and prosperity. That's not their agenda. You can see next door in Syria that they didn't really seem to care if the whole country went to the you know, collapsed as long as they maintain their security corridors and so on. So Hezbollah is really not eager to bend over backwards uh, in order to satisfy the IMF or the international community. At the same time, it doesn't favor a complete you know, social and economic collapse. So I think we're looking at them encouraging the politicians to do the minimum to trigger a little bit of, you know, trickle of aid uh, so that, you know, Lebanon can limp along, but really keep the country away from any uh, of the big reforms, which would really mean that Hezbollah has to abide by Lebanese laws and regulations, which it doesn't want to. Uh, it, it via, you know, it controlled the port, it controls the airport, it violates the, port, the borders, it doesn't pay taxes, it gets electricity for free, it smuggles wherever and whatever it wants. It doesn't want to give anything, any of that up. So I only see a window for limited engagement with the international community to help Lebanon away from complete collapse. But I don't see a window for real positive full-scale engagement at this time. Paul, let's um, skip back to outside actors. And you mentioned that France was um, was there and Macron was visiting as part of a humanitarian effort in the post-blast. Is there anything else there? It was very strange to see how well-received he was. It looked very post-colonial. And the question really rises is whether France is looking to reinforce its influence on Lebanon by proposing this political transition. I mean, I do think Macron's visit was very genuine. Lebanon and France really have a very long and deep relationship. There's hundreds of thousands of Lebanese in France. Uh, there's French businessmen, intellectuals that are, that are part of kind of the French psyche. Uh, so the relationship is real and is personal and is, you know, shared values as well. Uh, I would note that that's particularly strong uh, within the Christian community in Lebanon. Uh, and the blast, given where the port is, you know, largely decimated the East Beirut part, which is majority Christian. So there was that aspect. I don't think, I mean, yes, President Macron and France generally wants to maintain and always has an, inf an influence and a presence uh, in Lebanon. It, it also has a, an interest in maintaining influence in the Mediterranean in general uh, for many, many economic and strategic and security reasons. So, yes, it's part of the French uh, perspective, but I also wouldn't overinflate it as if Lebanon is some big geo 
political gain that Macron is trying to seize. It's kind of more of a headache than it is a gain. But it is, you know, it is part of the French perspective on the Mediterranean and their foreign policy for sure. Uh, his presence was greatly welcomed uh, at a time when, you know, the Lebanese people for the last nine, ten months have saying we don't want our leaders, we want them all out. Uh, and they blame the blast uh, on either just negligence of the ruling class, which would be a criminal negligence, or a criminal act. In either case, it's criminal, in their view. Uh, and after the blast, none of the Lebanese leaders or Hezbollah leaders dared show their face for fear of being, you know, pelted with whatever. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, somebody like Macron was certainly welcomed because he's not seen as part of Lebanon's current problems. Yes, it did have a bit of a, you know, a colonial uh, aspect to it because some people frankly said, I mean, you know, things might have been better under some, <laughs> you know, you know, our own people are governing us and it's terrible. Uh, now, that's not a serious proposal, but there was a bit of a tinge of that. And um, other actors, the FBI working at the request of the Lebanese government. Is that presence helpful from an investigative point of view or does it just create more suspicions about Israeli involvement? Well, I mean, yes, it's helpful. But uh, uh, at this a couple of weeks after the blast happened, uh, as you noticed, maybe the verdict of the special tribunal for Lebanon came out. Now, that special tribunal, which was looking into a crime in 2005, another blast, uh, which was seemed to end up being linked to Hezbollah, which killed the sort of former prime minister, larger than life figure. Uh, that, you know, long investigation, which cost almost a billion dollars, came out with a very puny uh, kind of verdict 15 years late after the fact that maybe they have one person who they think was involved. So, I mean, yes, having international involvement in the, gul in the port blast is welcome because certainly the Lebanese authorities won't investigate it properly. But the Lebanese, I think, don't have much faith either that some international investigation like the investigation into the killing of Hariri is going to be fast, speedy, uh, or very effective. But yeah, I guess it is, a, it is a welcome participation. Can we just take a second and look as we wind up the interview, but let's, let's zoom out and take the wider angle and look at the wider region. What are the implications of a collapsing Lebanon for the larger region? Where is, you know, what does it mean for Syria and where is Syria and all of this? You know, for so long it's been the manipulator of Lebanese politics. How does it affect Israel? Does How does the Israeli-UAE agreement to establish diplomatic relations affect Lebanon? Take a wide-angle lens and, and run us through a tour of how you see what's happening in Lebanon affecting the broader region? Well, if Lebanon, if Lebanon fully collapses in terms of real state collapse, and that is possible, because the only thing really keeping the country together is the army, uh, with a little bit of support from the internal security forces, and as their salaries, salaries dwindle to nothing, basically, you know, can't say if that army will be around to, you know, keep the peace for much longer. If the state fully collapses, as it did in 1975, uh, Lebanon will then descend uh, into a chessboard of uh, warring militias uh, belonging to different communities. Hezbollah will certainly be the biggest. It will also probably mean a rapid return of ISIS 
and Al-Qaeda because there will be nothing to stop them. Uh, the first impact will actually be westward uh, because uh, refugees will start streaming out of the country. Uh, there is already 1.5 million Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Uh, if things get bad in Lebanon, they want to look to go west. Uh, and uh, and if Lebanon collapses, many Lebanese will turn into refugees and want to either uh, simply have an exodus through the airports and so on, or a refugee exodus through Cyprus, which is very close, and from Cyprus to Greece, Greece to Europe, you know, a repeat of what happened a few years ago. So the implications for the Mediterranean and Western Europe are particularly stark, which is why they're very engaged. Refugees will not be streaming east. So it doesn't have a direct, in that sense, a direct impact on the Gulf countries. They can't stream south to Israel. They're not going to be streaming to war-torn Syria. The region itself is certainly uh, changing. Uh, the change is not coming about because of Lebanon's problems, but uh, uh, as you mentioned, a very significant development with the uh, agreement between the UAE and Israel to normalize relations, which is likely to bring other Gulf countries along that path. Uh, likely to bring Morocco. Uh, and then if you step back and look at the Arab world, if you have Morocco and Egypt, the two biggest Arab countries, and the Gulf, and whether Saudi Arabia formally joins or not, it's clear that UAE wouldn't have done this without a Saudi okay. That means basically the Arab, you know, the bulk of the Arab world is normalized relations with Israel. And that ends 80 years or 70 years of a particular arrangement uh, in the Middle East. It also means that Iran maintains its mini-empire, which is a sphere of influence which includes Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen. Uh, and it's a pretty miserable empire. It's an empire of failed or failing states. But Iran is not likely to be chased out of those places either. So sadly, uh, Lebanon's demise would mean a lot for the Lebanese. It would be very uh, troubling for the Europeans. But I think... Sadly, the region, living with failed states in Yemen and Libya and Syria and some, some degree Iraq, would not be probably profoundly changed by yet another Arab country going down the tubes. On that not very optimistic note, we want to thank you, Paul Salem, for joining us on Altamar. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Mooney. It uh, was a pleasure. Mooney, a um, truly depressing interview with Paul Salem. Excellent and educational and, but not motivational in the sense that whatever the changes that he describes happening in the Middle East, and indeed for the first time in so long, there are changes in the Middle East that at least from Western eyes could be seen as positive. One of the consequences of these changes may be just that people just accept Lebanon as another Libya, another Yemen, a totally failed state. But with Lebanon, it's such, may Libya and Yemen forgive me, but with Lebanon, it's such a pity because for so long, they were the example of how one can be Middle Eastern and Arab and at the same time also Western. And so it, it really is, it's a sad uh, interview. They are at the crosshairs, and I'm, I'm no Lebanon expert at all, but I can just basically see how it's at the mercy of all these other forces that are in neighboring countries and in their own country in this sectarian system. I am heartened by these young people who are protesting. I think that 
we have seen examples of how these protests can lead to change if they're, you know, continuous and if they're, and if they unite. And I was, that was kind of a glimmer that I, aside from the, the French post-colonialism, but I, I thought that was a glimmer of hope in this interview where there are sustained protests that are taking place that are really calling for change. So I think the change has to come from within. But without fixing the problem of Hezbollah, and it's the fact that Hezbollah has become an Iranian-backed state within a state, it doesn't, I think Paul did a great job, it doesn't pay taxes, it doesn't pay port fees, it doesn't, it uh, smuggles everything it can, it manages its own charity system, its own schools, it's a state within a state, and it's all financed by Iran. And until that fact disappears, I, I saw this with my own eyes, I was on the Israeli-Lebanese border from the Israeli side, and what used to be Lebanese army towers on the other side were towers with Hezbollah flags. And so I don't know. I think, I think his point was it's Lebanon is not entirely fixable unless that problem is somehow resolved and it can't be resolved without Iran. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. See you next time. 